0: the Paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio and now here's Gene Steinberg
1: so last week we had a fascinating change of pace here on the Paracast we had William Hall and he was talking about this rather involved poltergeist case in Connecticut back in 1974 now, I remember back in 1974, I was the news director of a radio station in Pennsylvania, and we were chasing UFOs, but we never got much around to chasing haunted houses in those years.
2: <laughs> you don't have to chase very far. I mean, they don't have legs. They
1: won't run away. Well, they just come to you, assuming you live in the wrong place. We did live in an old row house in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, two-story row house, and one time... We saw something that my first wife, Geneva, called a water elemental sometime around 3 o'clock in the morning. Why do things always happen at 3 o'clock in the morning?
2: Well, how do you know it was a water
1: elemental? That was her interpretation. Oh, okay. And she says to me, did you see that? That's a water elemental. Now, when I go to sleep, I'm not wearing contact lenses. I'm not wearing my eyeglasses. I've been myopic rather severely since I was like 12 years old. so therefore. I just saw like a blur, a blur or a shadow. And we did have a dog, a little white dog named Ellie at the time, a Spitz. And it couldn't be the dog because it was much taller, unless Ellie kind of grew up at night when we were asleep. But that's the only thing I ever saw that was weird. As I said, this is a pretty old row house, probably dating back, I don't know, the 20s or 30s. So it must have had a fascinating history to it, but we knew nothing about it. We just rented it from a fellow who worked at the steel mill in Coatesville. Of course, that steel mill is long ago and far away, but that's another story. Anyway, that's my encounter with something allegedly spiritual. But I really enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed the session with William Hall, and I know that we had a lot of really interesting listener reaction to it. But a lot of what you see and hear there, of course, depends on one's eyewitness testimony. And we're going to ask our guest, Bruce McAfee, a bit later about the value of eyewitness testimony. But when it comes to seeing ghosts, witnessing poltergeist phenomena, when it comes to watching somebody get shot by a police officer, as they did in Ferguson, Missouri, a lot of what transpired first depends on eyewitness testimony. Of course, with Something that where a crime is involved or a potential crime, you do have forensic evidence. But you're still depending for your basic account on eyewitness testimony. When you have a UFO and people see something in the sky or lands, there is eyewitness testimony. And the more I'm reading about the Ferguson incident, Chris, it shows how unreliable eyewitness testimony is. The stories were all over the place. Yeah. The officer shot the young man from the front, from the back. He was close. He was far. And then there was an article in the Washington Post about the problems with eyewitness testimony, pointing out that there's this group, a nonprofit group called the Innocence Project. And what they do is they look into cases where people were allegedly convicted of crimes they may not have committed. They look at the evidence, and they pointed out that in about a third of the cases where people were found innocent of the crime of which they were committed, they depended in large part on eyewitness testimony. And that eyewitness testimony was found to be extremely flawed. So the question is here, of course, Chris, and you're someone who's done so much investigation, to what degree can we depend on what people think they saw?
2: well you know you have the the double difficulty of eyewitness testimony of an unusual totally paradigm shifting event sometimes uh witnesses when they see something you know horrific uh, like a murder or something that really shakes them to their core uh, you would think that, that that would be emblazoned in their mind accurately and I think uh, sometimes the opposite happens. Uh, it, it makes people more confused. It just rocks their worldview uh, because of of the event. And they have a very, very difficult time, I think, piecing together uh, the sequence of events. Uh, duration um, is something that I've seen oftentimes. Uh, sometimes it gets elongated. Sometimes a, a mere few seconds seems like um, many minutes. Or sometimes the opposite. Sometimes you have time compression where... A longer event appears to f- to flash by in a, in a matter of seconds. So, you know, it's there's no real rhyme or reason of how the human brain cognizes and processes information during, you know, a a startling event. And I would think that a UFO sighting would obviously fall into that category. So, I've mentioned uh, a number of times on the show that I've had multiple witness events where descriptions are generally fairly consistent, but the duration, especially a sequence of events, what happened first, what happened second, then what, then what, these things oftentimes get turned around, jumbled up, it's amazing. You can take people separately and interview them and, and then compare notes. You can come up with a, with a fairly, I think, accurate generalization about an event in terms of sequence events and duration. But sometimes it's hard to figure out because, because things are so all over the map. You know, this is always going to be a problem. That's why I have been championing for years hard data research with triangulated camera arrays that, that can't get this information wrong. You know, we're going to have to ask today's guest what he thinks about the future of ufology and and whether we can rely on eyewitness testimony as opposed to actually you know relying on on scientific instrumentation which i think obviously is the way to go
1: well one thing mentioned in this washington post article is that people of course are not photographic machines and they make assumptions they fill in missing details and a lot of times when someone thinks they saw something some of those details were inferred, were assumed, or they got those details from somebody else. So somebody else mentions, did you notice that? I noticed this here. I noticed how the object made a U-turn. Now, what witness never saw the U-turn, but they'll assume it must have been true because somebody told them that. So it's a matter of not just of seeing the event, recording the event, but making assumptions based on what you hear, what you read. And that takes us back to any case, that is removed by a number of years or decades. How do you get an accurate picture of what people saw? Of course, that takes us back to cases like Roswell. Right. Where we had the original story, and then we had memories of what happened that go back 30 years. Yeah, decades. Decades. How do you know what happened? Especially if you're remembering something when you were 10 or 12 years old. Oh, my dad brought home this fragment of something and it seemed to be flexible and what was it well we can argue about that until the end of time
2: right and, Any- and i'm sure we will <laughs>
1: <laughs> never ends so we're going to do something here with our episode of the Paracast, where we're going to go back through history and begin to paint a picture of the fbi cia ufo connection how are these agencies involved? How have they interacted with each other? We have Dr. Bruce McAbee, who has written really an entertaining book. I didn't start reading it till fairly late. But it's the kind of book that is, as Leslie Kane said in a review of it, a page-turner. It really is. It's a well-written book. It's easy to go through. It's not something that the prose is dull and distracting. It just takes you through the story and a lot of fascinating things to discuss. And we'll ask Dr. McAbee about the accuracy of eyewitness testimony. A reminder, folks, it's here now, Paracast Plus. You get the ad-free version of the Paracast, get a higher resolution copy, better listening experience, and it's five bucks a month. For admission to our top secret download area, speaking of top secret, we have a little fledgling chat room. We'll be adding more stuff as we go on. To learn more, go to plus.theparacast.com, P-L-U-S.theparacast.com. And I even made it work if you just go plus.paracast.com. It works that way too. You can check out how to sign up and we look forward to your subscription. Dr. Bruce Maccabee is coming up next with Gene and Chris, you're in The (laughs) Paracast.
3: 6. Be proactive, not reactive. Call 1-800-686-2237 extension 116.
4: Do you have relatives and
5: friends that are convinced there's no need ever to prepare for any kind of emergency? Are these also folks you buy Christmas presents for? At 30dayfoodsupply.com, we can solve both of these problems at the same time. Go to 30dayfoodsupply.com or call 541-229-0010. We can ship your Christmas presents directly to them. Choose from our original $99 30-day food supply, our long-term storage vegan burger mixes, and other oatmeal, soups, porridges, beans, and granolas for everyday use. All products, are non-gmo msg free and vegetarian most are gluten soy and nut free call 541-229-0010 today oregon trail foods and 30dayfoodsupply.com keep prices low cutting out the middleman by buying directly from their producers in oregon remember only ten dollars ships your entire order to the lower 48 visit the website 30dayfoodsupply.com call 541-229-0010 30dayfoodsupply.com 541-229-0010
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you
5: have a comment or question about the
0: Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: We have Dr. Bruce Maccabee returning to the Paracast. Of course, we've covered a lot of his research over the years, involvement in the Gulf Breeze case and others. His latest book, written for Richard Dolan Press, it's Richard Dolan's new publishing company, is called The FBI-CIA UFO Connection. And that, I'm sure, implies a lot. When you read the book, you're going to see how he discovers what these agencies did separately, possibly together, what they know about UFOs, and maybe some of the decisions they've made. So, Dr. McAbee, welcome to the PowerCast again. And I want to get started like in the real early days, real early history here with regard to the government agencies and UFOs. So we obviously expected, as was true, that the Air Force was involved. Some people were surprised to see the Navy being involved in UFO research, certainly intelligence agencies. But why the FBI? Why would the FBI be interested in things in the sky?
6: The FBI wouldn't normally be interested, and it hasn't been for a number of years. But uh, the reason they got involved was at the request of the Air Force. This whole mess sort of started then when uh, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting on June 24th, 1947, and then that was publicized on June 25th, 1947, after which there were numerous reports of sightings, some that happened before Kenneth Arnold, and hundreds that happened afterwards. There was a big explosion of sightings uh, in the early July the first week of July. I don't know if anybody knows exactly how many sightings there were in this first flap, the 1947 flap. But Ted Woscher had a book, wrote a book called The 1947 Flap, in which he counted 800 sightings. And people since then have uh, looked up other newspaper stories and estimated it could have been well, well over a thousand reports in a period of a couple of weeks. And of course, some of the people, some of the witnesses were Air Force people themselves. Uh, you have to take a a split view of this situation in early July, there's a view that ignores the Roswell case. Why ignore the Roswell case? Because it's never been absolutely conclusively proven, although it is in principle possible to uh, find somewhere the hardware and say, yes, it was real. So you can look at it from the point of view that there was no Roswell, or you can look at it from the point of view that there was a Roswell. And as I said, if you do that, then you're basing your arguments on information that we can't confirm. So I stick mostly to the non-Roswell interpretation, while pointing out in the book that that does not mean that I think Roswell is nothing. I think it actually happened, but I'm not using it at all to, to make the arguments that I do in the book. So anyway, on the 8th of July, there were sightings at Edwards Air Force Base, I was at Muroc Air Force Base in the state of California at this point. According to Ruppelt's book, the report on unidentified flying objects, this is when the Air Force really took an interest in the subject. Two days later, on the 10th of July, the Air Force contacted the FBI. The Air Force told the FBI that they were using all their scientists and, uh, to run down these reports of strange objects flying through the sky. They wanted the FBI to in the interview witnesses to find out if there was any possibility of communist subversion going on. The communist aspect would be that communist sympathizers would generate serious reports of sightings to make the American people feel that our own Air Force couldn't handle a situation, some sort of a threat that we we couldn't manage, maybe even give the impression that the Soviet Union was flying flying the saucers over the United States. At any rate, it looked like uh, something the uh, FBI could get into because of the idea of communist subversives being involved. And so the Air Force asked the FBI to interview witnesses and essentially decide whether they were faking it or reporting true sightings. By the end of July, Hoover had sent a uh, memo around to the special agents in charge at various areas in the United States. Each state had at least one person saying, uh, you should, uh, if you come upon a sighting, You should interview the witnesses and send the information to headquarters, FBI, and to the Air Force. Because of the fact that the FBI was directed by Congress never to throw anything away, that is, the headquarters FBI, anything that made it into headquarters was stayed there. It's like a black hole. Information went in and nothing came out. Local FBI offices had a five- or ten-year rule that they could destroy stuff, but not the headquarters. In 1977. In 1976, no, 1976, when I filed the Freedom of Information Act request, actually, I was interested in the uh, the Trent case I was working on it at the time, the Trent photo case of McMinnville, around 1950. And I had found out that uh, Mr. Trent claimed the FBI had visited him where he worked. So I thought, well, maybe with the Freedom of Information Act available in 1975 or 76, I thought maybe I could get some information on whether or not Trent had actually been contacted by the FBI. So I wrote a letter in September of 76 to the FBI and asked if they had any records on Paul A. Trent of McMinnville, Oregon. And now I saw, uh, oh, by the way, if you have anything else on UFOs, please let me know. I didn't expect to get much of anything because, again, referring to Edward J. Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, he said the FBI had never been involved that's what he wrote. So, uh, based on that, I didn't expect to get anything. About six months later, in the spring of 1977, uh, I got a, a, a phone call from a very surprised FBI agent. He said over a thousand pages. It would turn out to be 1600 pages of information in the FBI file. A lot of it was, uh, copies of newspaper articles and, and internal memoranda, but uh, copies of stuff. But in any case, there was a pile of data there, which no one had ever seen until I saw it. Even the FBI agent himself was surprised that the FBI had done anything on, on UFOs the flying saucers. So when I got these documents, I started reading through and comparing stuff with the, what was then the known history, mostly based on Rupel. But what the uh, Air Force was doing, I found some things in the FBI file that were Air Force What the Air Force was doing, without uh, it didn't appear in the the Air Force file on this subject, the the so-called Blue Book file, which includes documents that start in the late 1947, sightings starting in 1947 and going onwards.
1: Let me just interrupt here for a few minutes here, which kind of surprises me here. We have Captain Edward Ruppelt, the head of Project Blue Book. This is the agency that's supposedly investigating UFOs. but. He doesn't indicate in his book that the FBI had this rather big investigative involvement?
6: Well, you got to understand that Ruppel didn't get involved himself until the latter 1951. And by that time, the FBI had been out of it for a couple of years. The FBI early only investigated for a couple of months about two dozen witnesses. And then they got a document from the, an Air Force person, it sort of leaked to the FBI, I guess, saying that the real reason the FBI had been brought in was to handle the cases of ash can covers and toilet seats, in other words, the hoax cases. And when um, Hoover learned that, he said, okay, well, we're not doing this anymore. And he directed the special agents in charge. If they come upon any information on flying saucers, to uh, send it immediately to the Air Force and don't do an investigation.
1: We're going to add something special to the Paracast Plus. It's a new podcast called After the Paracast with Color Commentary. That's after the Paracast. It's available only if you subscribe to the Paracast Plus. Go to plus.theparacast.com. That's P-L-U-S.theparacast.com. With Gene and Chris and Dr. Bruce McAbee, you're in the the Paracast.
7: is largest independently owned communications network g c n
8: is there a secret ufo agenda do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth is there evidence for mind control time travel or devious government conspiracies find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies Paranormal activity and Florian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news. It's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. That's Mr. UFO. At webtv.net. Find out what they don't want you to know.
9: This alert just came in. This special announcement is for business owners and leaders of organizations who've been waiting for the right time to build. foot church building for under $69,000. With the economy improving and interest rates still at historic lows, you can't afford to wait. So call 866-91-STEEL. Lock in your price now. Call 866-91-STEEL. That's 866-917-8335.
10: Hi, I'm Dr. Lorraine Hurley, and for over a decade, I've helped people maintain optimal health. I'd like to tell you about my choice of a powerful anti-aging antioxidant formula that also helps reduce damage caused by radiation. Z-Radical contains cucoidin. and there are over 700 studies showing how powerful it is. Z-Radical is a totally organic pure extract, and it is available by calling 855-315-8326. Again, it's 855-315-8326, or visit my website, drhurley.net. Iodine is necessary, but Z-Radical is so much more. Hi, I'm Dr. Lorraine Hurley, here to tell you about an amazing pain relief formula. Unlike Tylenol, Advil, or Ibuprofen, Lavinity Pain Relief Formula is completely non-toxic and actually stimulates healing. Lavinity Pain Relief comes in a gel or capsule, and in my years of helping people, I've never seen anything like it. After rubbing a small amount on an aching muscle or a sore joint, many people report the pain is gone within a minute. Call 855 That's 855-315-8326, or visit drhurley.net for more information.
6: This is Jacques vallee You're listening to the podcast, The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: We're tracing here the FBI's involvement in UFO research until J. Edgar Hoover pulled the plug with Dr. Bruce McAbee and his book just out earlier this year, is the FBI-CIA-UFO connection, and we're exploring the FBI's involvement. Now, after Hoover said, "niet" to UFOs, did the FBI give it up, or did they continue? What?
6: Well, the FBI stopped investigating witnesses, but that didn't mean that they stopped being a black hole. turned out that once they had established this liaison between the FBI and the Air Force, the Air Force often provided the FBI with information. And here is the real value of the FBI file, and why I wrote a book about it. The FBI was told things that the American people weren't. The FBI had a window on what the Air Force activities were doing, combining FBI files with the Air Force intelligence files. That we learned things like uh, there was a big confusion set in over how to explain reports, and that confusion turns up in the FBI file, where you see the Air Force blowing hot, alternately blowing hot and cold on the UFO subject. As I said, it turns up in the FBI file. And you see some of it in the, CIA, in the CIA file, too. The Air Force lied to the CIA about the possibility of interplanetary ships.
1: They, they lied to the CIA. Let's be more specific about that. Why do you lie to the CIA? That's got to be pretty interesting well, in and of itself.
6: Again, there's a lot of details that go into this, which are in the book. But basically, the CIA didn't really get interested in the subject as far as the documents are concerned until the big flap in 1952, and specifically after the Washington, D.C. flaps that led to the press conference where General Sanford, the director of intelligence of the Air Force, basically said there were credible people making incredible reports. But as far as he was concerned, it was all natural phenomena. At that point, there had been literally hundreds of sightings over the previous four or five weeks. So many that just about every newspaper in the United States had carried at least one sighting report. Uh, and uh, this was too much for the, uh, the guy who was the head of the CIA at the time. He directed his his people to uh, evaluate the situation. They went and talked to the Air Force at Wright Field or Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and they were told that uh, there was. No possibility that interplanetary craft, or whatever you want to call it, aliens were involved. And that's not what they told the FBI. The FBI in 1952, on the same day of this press conference, July 29, 1952, the FBI was told that 2 to 3 percent of the sightings could not be explained, and that apparently the top generals, at least some of them, were seriously considering interplanetary ships as the explanation. Now, General Samford, at his press conference, had said, "Oh yeah, we were considering interplanetary ships." The lid would have blown off, but he didn't. His office told the FBI one thing while he was telling the American people something else. To get to that point, 1952, there's a lot of history from 1947 through 1952. The history of things like sighting uh, flying saucers, sighting themselves by all sorts of people, uh, including an on-duty military and uh, the green fireball saga starting in 1948, and um, Project Twinkle, and a number of things that lead up to my conclusion that uh, the Air Force top generals knew that flying saucers were extraterrestrial, but they wouldn't allow that as an explanation when it came to explaining sightings. As a matter of fact, I date that to uh, the rejection of the estimate of the situation. I don't know if everybody listening to you would know what the estimate of the situation was. You know, why don't you
1: define that? We should also talk about the Robertson panel, but I have a, a third question to kick in there, but let's start with those two.
6: Well, this stuff began in 1947. Immediately, the Air Force took an interest and began. People at Wright Field was one. The air Techn- What became the Air Technical Intelligence Center the T1 and T2 and T3 people at Wright Field, which was later the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and Air Force Intelligence in the Pentagon. These are two intelligence groups working independently but on the same stuff. And they were handed a bunch of uh, documents by a general by the name of Shulden, who was in charge of collection of their intelligence. And he gave these documents to both, uh, both agencies, the uh, Air Force Intelligence, and the right field, and they independently did their work. Now, uh, the Air Force Intelligence people tried to force these sightings into an explanation based on Soviet uh, improvements on German war research. They said nothing about interplanetary, but the estimate of the situation, the the famous estimate, as recounted by Edward Ruppelt in his book. He said he actually saw it. That was uh, written by the people at Wright Field, went up through the chain of command to General Vandenberg, at which point he kicked it back, saying, for lack of proof, we're told, according to Ruppel. And then some men from Wright Field went to the uh, uh, Pentagon and tried to argue Vandenberg into another uh, way of looking at things. And again, he said, basically, sorry, wrong answer. Now we have traditionally thought of that as being well. There was enough proof for that for General Vandenberg, but I think there's another reason. I think Vandenberg uh, realized he could not let interplanetary become an allowed explanation for any of the sightings because if he did, that would re- uh, spring open a, a Pandora's box, which might reveal something like Roswell going on.
1: Yeah, you know, I want to ask you more about Roswell in a moment, only because we have that elephant in the room not being considered. but
6: well, let, me, so, let, me, let, me just, let me just be a little bit more specific on this. Before the estimate of the situation was shot down, there were a number of possible explanations for sightings. Uh, they, they said, could this be a U.S. craft, top secret U.S. craft? And so they searched all the uh, agencies of the Air Force, research agencies and so on, um, by the way, they told this to the FBI, too. Um, there was no U.S. project that could explain the flying saucer sighting. But the next thing was, well, could it be from the USSR, the Soviet Union? And uh, they didn't buy that. They didn't think that the Soviet Union had used German, had advanced German war research to the point where they could fly over the United States. And furthermore, even if they had developed top-secret craft that could fly over the United States, they wouldn't do it because uh, a craft might get shot down or might crash, and then they wouldn't, their technology wouldn't be secret anymore, just like we wouldn't fly any top-secret craft over the Soviet Union until we absolutely were sure it was operational and immune from a disaster. So that ruled out U.S. and U.S.S.R. Then there was a the possibility of misidentification of natural phenomena uh, or man-made phenomena, misidentifications, hoaxes, of course, and mental states of the witnesses' delusions, and uh, the last possibility was interplanetary. So when Vandenberg uh, kicked back the uh, estimate of the situation, he said a policy, as it were. The policy being interplanetary is not an allowed explanation, and from then on, you see the people who are doing the, the, the uh, analysis work, uh, what became the Air Technical Intelligence Center, uh, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book all trying to explain cases without using extraterrestrial as one of the allowed explanations, and there was a lot of confusion setting in. I asked myself, why in the world was Vandenberg reject this evidence provided by his own experts? He, he effectively employed these guys at Wright Field to decide, make all sorts of decisions relative to advanced aeronautical development of the Soviet Union and the United States and so on. In other words, they were the experts, and he was telling the experts, sorry, wrong answer.
9: <laughs> that I- certainly
1: is a typical politician or a military res- response. We have Dr. Bruce McAbee. We're talking about the FBI-CIA UFO connection with Gene and Chris in yeah. The Paracast. <laughs>
0: 154.
12: breakfast,
14: lunch, and dinner. Three square meals you'll need in an emergency. So the Freeze Dry Guy's three square meal unit sale is just the ticket. A variety pack of tasty, nourishing breakfast, lunch, and dinner on sale now. Breakfast is Freeze Dry Guy's favorite. Hot oatmeal and sweet dehydrated bananas. Lunch is Mountain House freeze dried hot macaroni and cheese and crisp green beans. And dinner is Mountain House long grain wild rice pilaf and hearty beef stew, vegetables, and gravy. Call Freeze Dry Guy and ask for details on the 120 Twenty-six serving three square meals unit. One case normally one sixty-four thirty-seven. Sale price at only one thirty-eight ninety. Save over twenty-five bucks. Get two or three cases and save even more. Or ask about freeze dry guys fall chili special. Always free shipping to lower forty-eight states. Call eight six six four zero four three six six three or click freeze dry And hurry! The fall chili special and three square meals unit are on sale while supplies last. From the freeze dry guy, the finest freeze dried and dehydrated foods available for long-term storage. Period
6: this is jerome clark author of the ufo encyclopedia and other books you're listening to the Paracast.
1: all right so we see this philosophy of kicking down any possibility that ufos are not conventional objects dr bruce Maccabee. And we have a lot to cover here, and not always as much time as we'd like. What about the Robertson panel? Explain that to our listeners.
6: Well, the CIA, as I said, got interested in 1952 at the time of this big flap. They went and interviewed the Air Force and were told that there was misidentification, hoaxes and delusions primarily. The way the CIA document presents what they were told by the Air Force, there was zero possibility that interplanetary craft was involved. Which, as I said, was essentially a lie to the CIA because at the same time, they were telling the FBI several percent of the sightings couldn't be explained and inter was one of the kind of things that top generals were thinking about. Anyway, the CIA subsequently did some of its own data collection and had collected data somewhat from around the world anyway. And uh, Marshall Chadwell, a top scientist of the CIA, decided that uh, it was time to do something. Uh, right on the front cover of the book, uh, I got a uh, few words from this one of the CIA documents saying that something's going on which demands immediate, immediate attention. This was around the end of the uh, year 1952. He decided it was proposed to a government agency and intelligence that the CIA hold a meeting, a panel to decide whether or not it was going to be worth investigating flying Hansa Society. And it's apparent from the way he wrote that he assumed. They would find out that there were. They would conclude that yes, there was something strange going on, and involved it required research work. Well, this panel was put together by NHP Robertson, and it was carried out in the latter part of January, I believe it is, of 1953, over a period of four days, and involved the um, Project Blue Book people making uh, presentations as to supposedly their best data, including some films and so on. Now, these gentlemen who are the scientists who are evaluating the data apparently had little background in the subject. The big main thing, though, is they decided that they could explain all the cases. One of the most egregious, quote, explanations, unquote, had to do with film by a Navy photographer as he was driving across Utah. Uh, In 1952, he and his wife saw these disc-like things with domes on the top flying around. He had to get out of his car, open up the trunk, pull out his uh, 16-millimeter professional movie camera and get it going And before he could uh, take any film. By the time he got his camera ready, the objects were off in the distance and they just show up as points of light. I have one of the frames of the film in the book. Anyway. This was discussed at the Robertson panel, and all I did was talk about the film itself, and they decided the film could be seagulls off in the distance. They didn't even consider the, the, the verbal testimony of Delbert uh, Newhouse and his wife, who saw these things when they were a lot closer and, they said, were circular with a dome on the top. But they didn't even consider the, the testimony. So it's things like that where information sort of falls through the cracks or gets modified, or allows them to say, "Well, we can explain everything," and when they claim they can explain everything, all the interest in the subject sort of ended.
1: Doctor Macabee, the question I have here is then, and by the way, please if possible keep the answers a bit shorter so we can get to more ground. Let me continue. Okay, so question I have here is, we follow this pattern of shall we call it institutionalized debunking of ufos this is the surface impression we see that everything can be explained conventionally behind the scenes where they're actually looking over this stuff is that what they wanted to believe is that what they were forced to believe what they pretended to believe did they have another opinion another point of view where they did have to take it seriously
6: well i guess depends on who you mean by they that you're talking about.
1: We're talking about any of the agencies that we've dealt with so far, the Air Force, the CIA, possibly the FBI. Were they all taking it really seriously? We can't figure this out behind the scenes. Or were they so involved in convincing the public they were conventional that they also maybe convinced themselves of the same thing?
6: Yes, I have uh, considered the possibility of what appeared to be the... uh, People doing work at Project Blue Book were sort of brainwashed themselves into believing that there was nothing to it, and uh, any explanation, in a, any explanation on a storm. Project Grudge was a uh, project uh, from between some Project Sign, Project Grudge, and then Project Blue Book, and uh, the Grudge report uh, which was publicized in December of 1950. The Grudge report was called by General. Cabell, who was at the time the Director of Air Force Intelligence, a worthless tripe. In Project Grudge, they they prided themselves on explaining every one of about 300 cases they had looked at. And uh, apparently, some 50 of those cases were, quote, explained, unquote, with the explanations being so unconvincing that even newsmen could see that there was something going on that was strange. But as time went on, uh, this uh, just sort of solidified into... UFOs can be anything but, the, but extraterrestrial, and so what do you get at the end of Project Blue Book when it closed in 1969, 13,000 cases, 701 of them, the left is unexplained, and as far as the Air Force official policy was concerned, of these 701, all of them could be explained if they had more information about the sightings, in other words, so-called insufficient information type of sightings. but. If you go and you look at the actual sightings themselves, you find there's plenty of information available to conclude something was going on. Therefore, didn't decide, as I did, that uh, there essentially was a policy undergoing, and it was being driven by the Air Force. It wasn't driven by the FBI. The FBI was totally confused, I would think, by what they were told. On the one hand, that there was U.S. Soviet weaponry. On the other hand, it was explainable as natural phenomena. Uh, on, on, and the Air Force kept saying publicly how un, uninterested it was in flying saucer reports. Uh, well, yeah, next back to
2: Van, uh, General Vandenberg's dismissal of the situation uh, back in 1948. It had a snowball effect when he dismissed the estimate of the situation document, which is fairly famous now. Uh, that's where we really see the first... Uh, Indication of a of a policy of uh, denial, and that, I love that term, uh, Gene. Institutionalized debunking and ridicule. Uh, it goes all the way back till to 1948 with uh, with General Vandenberg. I would I would think that it it kind of appears that way uh, reading through the section in your book on that.
6: Right, well, that was, that's that's my my input, I guess, on this whole problem. Uh, is the re- re-evaluation or reinterpretation of Vandenberg kicking back the estimate of the situation, essentially telling his experts they're wrong. My guess is he didn't tell them they were wrong. It's just he said you can't you can't go public because if he had allowed interplanetary as an explanation, that would have leaked out. Oh yeah, the Air Force is considering interplanetary saucers as some of the uh, things that are flying around. And uh, the Air Force apparently didn't want that to happen. So he stomped on the problem right, off the, right off the, at the outset, as it were, by saying, you guys can't use... I'm uh, speculating. He said, you guys can't use um, extraterrestrials as an allowed explanation. It all has to be U.S., U.S.S.R., um, hoaxes, delusions, or misidentifications of natural and man-made phenomena. All right. By setting that by setting that policy, he caused a lot of confusion in the following years.
1: Well, it's a matter of being politically correct, it sounds like to me, but get back to the other elephant in the room, the Roswell connection. So if Roswell is, as has been interpreted later, an actual crash of an alien spacecraft, this had to be somewhere very important to the authorities, a huge undercurrent. No matter what they say publicly, they know this. And isn't that something that would have had to have gotten a lot of play in at least intelligence and military circles?
6: Well, having read the book, you know that I do say, I do talk about Roswell, but my argument is not based on that. However, if Roswell were real and they wanted to cover it up, that would even be more reason for General Vandenberg to shoot down the Explanation. If if they had, if suppose the right field came up, right field analysts came up with the correct explanation. Yep, they're interplanetary, and uh, Vandenberg knows about the Roswell crash, and he knows it's being suppressed to be covered up essentially as much as possible. He wouldn't dare let uh, interplanetary be part of the allowed explanations.
1: Okay, so that therefore becomes a subtext in all this. Let's do our break, and yeah. we'll get into more of this dr bruce mackabee is here we've got a lot more to talk about the fbi cia ufo connection you're on with gene and chris you're in the
2: Paragast.
7: independently leading the way for the nation compelling talk for every political persuasion we are g c n Genesis is defined as an origin, creation, or the beginning. Genesis Communications Network began with the mission of providing you with the kind of compelling content you're listening to now. And at GCNlive.com, you'll find a free archive of our nation's history, narrated by GCN hosts. Explore, share, and pass down to future generations. GCN is the future of talk radio, but we should always strive to learn from our past. Together, we are GCNlive.com. GCN.
9: What good is
8: a big Berkey water filter?
16: can last for five to ten years. That means big savings. Big Berkey, the one that's powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water. Get a Big Berkey today at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. GCN listeners receive five percent off all ceramic filter systems. Visit our website or call one eight seven seven ninety nine Berkey. That's eight seven seven ninety nine B E R K E Y. Big Berkey water filters for the love of clean water. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene
1: Steinberg. With Gene and Chris in the Paracast, Dr. Bruce McAbee joins us. A reminder again, we've got that new service called Paracast Plus. You get the ad free version of the powercast higher resolution copy better sounding and everything way to get it is this go to plus dot the p l u s dot the com. we tell you how you sign up for our Paracast plus premium service that's almost a tongue twister five bucks a month 50 bucks a year and we'll have more stuff going on. We're already breaking in a fledgling chat room. We'll have other audio presentations, videos, lots more to come. Beginning this weekend, we'll even be adding the special, exclusive after the Powercast podcast with color commentary and more. Powercast plus plus dot the dot com. Chris.
2: Bruce, a couple of years ago, um, actually it's been a little longer. The latest in in what have you know turned out to be a long line of whistleblowers um, has come out, and he is the CIA guy uh, Chase Brandon. What discuss his his claims about Roswell and and whether you think that he was tasked to come out with that uh, revelation about a box full of documents, or or do you think that he, that he truly was a whistleblower?
6: Well, I understand he also had a book out, <laughs> so he might have been playing up stuff to sell his book but I don't know anything more about it than uh has been published already I have never talked to the person his story if I as I understand it is he was in a in a safe that is a big room uh, that as a you can only get into it with a circuit secret code method uh, where they store historical documents of the CIA Some found, found some box with the word Roswell on it pulled it out, looked at it, looked at the stuff on the inside, said, "Uh uh-huh, this confirms my feeling that Roswell was real. Stuck the box back in. Uh, As far as I know, he didn't say when that happened. But subsequently, uh, he went public in 2010, was it? Or 12,
2: 2012. It was, I think, about three years ago, a little over three years ago.
6: Yeah, whatever. The point is that uh, he said uh, he hadn't been in that safe for a long time, but he didn't say when it occurred. Obviously, uh, a CIA historian was reported as saying he searched through this safe and didn't find anything. Of course, the Roswell box could have been removed years ago or the day after Chase Brandon went public. We wouldn't know. So uh, that's a a typical story that's sort of hanging by a thread out there, relying on uh, the uh, veracity of Mr. Brandon.
2: You have a lot of friends in the agency. I mean, you've, uh, according to your book, you've you've given presentations on any number of occasions. You've uh, checked in with uh, friends of yours within the agency. Have you asked Ron Pandolfi, have you asked others uh, who have been uh, close uh, to you over the years about this particular claim? And w- have, what was well, their response I, that, to this?
6: That, that, that claim came long after I was at the uh, visited the agency. That claim was uh, in 2011 or 12, or whichever year it was. Right. I uh, never had heard of him before. You can, Having read the book, you know that I was trying to investigate the CIA at the same time they were probably trying to investigate me.
2: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I, yes. I, I wouldn't want to get into a betting match who's going to get a little bit more information than.
6: <laughs> the story is outlined in the book shows that uh Everything that I published in there was, was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, except for a few comments by Kit Green and so on in 2008. I was not unaware of uh, Chase Brandon until I heard about it through the grapevine, and he had been talking. There was an earlier guy, uh, Harry Rositsky, right. who supposedly was um, the Falcon.
2: Falcon and the, the aviary. I, I wanted to ask you about the aviary.
6: And I've asked a lot of people the CIA about this, and they don't know They've never heard of never heard of Rosicki. you'd have to be in the same section of the CIA, I suppose to get any cross fertilization
2: right so if you're in the CIA and you want to find out about somebody else in the CIA, uh, it's a difficult process. is that what you're saying if if they're not in your in your particular uh, section yeah, yeah,
6: but, yeah, you'd have to you'd have to know something about the person first in order to identify him as the person right. person you want to talk to. You don't just go wandering around asking people. Oh, by the way, have you been down in the uh, in the uh, history chase and have you seen the Roswell box recently? <laughs> well, uh,
2: people have kind of uh, whispered around, uh, you know, wondering about your relationship with the CIA. Uh, you are very close with, uh, or you, over the years you were very close with with people who were known to. Uh, to uh, work for the agency. Ron Pandolfi, of course, was the head of the science and technology desk for many years. He still may be, I'm not even sure. Why don't you give us a a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of how you were first brought in to brief the CIA and kind of take us through the the process of establishing your relationship within the agency.
6: Well, as I point out in the book, the beginning of my involvement with the CIA had to do with photographic analysis or investigate radar, radar analysis. In the same sense that my involvement with the FBI began as a result of photo analysis. But the uh, December 1978 uh, New Zealand sightings, uh, that were publicized worldwide.
2: Right, the Valentech case.
6: Involved,
2: huh? The Valentech case.
6: No, that's just, that was October of 78. And then, then December 1978 was, was a movie film uh, multiple witness people on board an aircraft uh, in the middle of the night um, seeing lights and getting film and ha- having verbal testimony and objects picked up by the ground radar as well as the airplane radar. A very complicated case. The only one that I'm aware of that is had any portion of a sighting argued out in the open literature. You can see all that stuff on my website, which, by the way, is dot. K dot com. That's the number eight, letter K. dot kcom Anyway, I wanted some consultation on my analysis of the radar sightings, and I first talked to a guy at MITRE Corporation, Gordon McDonald, and he suggested I talk to an expert at the CIA, which floored me. I never would have thought to talk to the CIA. After all, they were considered to be the bad boys of ufology. Running the whole cover up or something. And that was in December of 78. And that same month, the FBI, the CIA had coughed up about 900 pages of documents after saying that all they had was a couple of dozen pages related to the Robertson panel. In fact, they had hundreds of pages. So, but nevertheless, I decided, well, okay, maybe I'll do it just to see what the CIA is like. At that point, I was still working for the Navy. Uh, and, uh, so I had a security clearance and didn't have any trouble getting into the CIA to talk about, um, this sighting. And, uh, I went there and talked about seven, I think it was like seven, seven guys uh, who represented different parts of the CIA, I suppose, who were interested in the sighting. And, uh, after that, uh, I did get to talk to a radar expert. And I think I was at the agency three times in 1979, in the spring of '79. Then I didn't get much help. I didn't go back again, and had never had not planned to return to the CIA ever. But five years later, I got a phone call from a guy, Ron Pandolfi. I got a phone call. Uh, he uh, was interested in. Uh, The work that I was doing in laser-generated underwater sound, I call it LGUS. This is Navy work related to ASW, anti-submarine warfare. And uh, he had noticed that this phenomenon we were using, the generation of underwater sound using a laser. You fly in an airplane with a powerful pulsed laser, You zap the water surface with a laser, and generates underwater sound that goes out from this zap point. And then you can use that to communicate one way with submarines in a covert manner or you can use it to detect echoes underneath which could be used in uh, detecting underwater submarines. Anyway, he had noticed that there were a lot of papers in the Soviet Union on that subject.
1: Let's go into more of the framing of that in a moment with Dr. Bruce McAbee. The book is about the FBI CIA UFO connection. That's almost a tongue twister with Gene and Chris. You're in the paracast. <laughs> Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com.
15: Namecheap.com.
7: The polar vortex is here and expected to
0: freeze over part of the U.S. Help is needed. Resources are often drained by people capable of caring for themselves, leaving those with the greatest needs to go without. Do your part by being prepared this winter. A supply of Go Foods will provide delicious nutrition, comfort, and security during hard times. Protect your community and call Go Foods at 1-800-648-9753 or on the web at www.storefoodnow.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Remember, once again, go to plus.theparacast.com. That's P-L-U-S dot theparacast.com to learn more about our premium package. Paracast Plus. We've got Doctor Bruce Mackaby joining us. He was continuing a long explanation, and we're up to the Soviet document level. What else?
6: Well, he wanted to talk to me about later uh, uh, the experiments I had done on laser-generated underwater sound. It turned out that I was a friend of mine, and I were the only people in the Navy who were doing work on this stuff. So uh, I mean, we were we were aware to some extent of the Soviet work, but not it wasn't something we paid close attention to. So anyway, he contacted me on this day in uh, 1984, and he wanted me to provide a briefing on the next day for a group of people who were interested in this later generated underwater sound stuff. And that was okay. i had given lots of briefings. So I'd come up with a briefing for the CIA in one day with no sweat. Then a couple hours later, I got another phone call from him, more discussion about the nature of the briefing and so on. And then he says something like, I understand you've been here before. And I sort of froze in my tracks, in a sense, because I had to admit that I had been there before, but it didn't have anything to do with later-generated underwater sound. I was certainly not intending to bring up the UFO aspect to him, but he basically brought it up to me. He said that he had been mentioning I was coming to talk about this underwater sound, and one of the people he had told recognized my name and had been at that meeting. That was Kit Green, Christopher Green. And... uh so that made, that established a connection between UFOs and me and the CIA. <laughs> and so, uh, in the following years, we would often discuss various aspects of the UFOs, whatever UFO sightings or stuff was going on in the UFO field. Uh, i meet with, uh, Pandolfi a couple of times a year, uh, as work on this laser generated underwater sound. We were close to a, uh, th- attempting to get funding for a major uh, field experiment. And in 1985, for example, by that time we had worked our way up to the admiral level for presentations. We had five admirals in one day. Pandolfi was there giving us uh, a security briefing at the same time. Or, or rather, briefing on what the Soviet the status of Soviet research is, is understood by the uh, CIA. Anyway, that established a contact and uh, so I was paying careful attention to the people that I talked to at the agency to see if any of them knew more than I did about the subject. Right. Yeah, you assumed, and John Alexander. <laughs> I sort of assumed that um, if they had somebody officially working on this project on UFOs, then uh, that that person would know more about it than I do, and give himself away somehow
2: if that person existed, which I, I, I assume they do, that person would probably be under uh, Pandolfi, wouldn't you think, at Science well, and Technology?
6: Well, uh, that's what you would think, but there wasn't anybody under Pandolfi. Uh, and Kit Green was the, the guy I talked to in 79. He was still there in 84, and uh, then he retired a couple years later, and Pandolfi took over the so-called weird desk
2: I like that the weird desk. Yeah. It sounds like my desk. Just looking at it here in my office. <laughs> uh,
6: 1987 was a big year for uh, boy. I'll
2: say it was uh, that the conference uh, in DC uh, must have cost a lot of money. And uh,
6: yeah, it's kind of amusing to me that this recent conference they had last week, where they had four people, four people on a panel right. at American University. And I sent him a message. I sent the guy who put it together a message saying, you know, what you've done is not so unique after all. We did it back in 1987.
2: (laughs) That brings Uh, up the point, uh, Bruce, who funded that 1987 conference? I've uh, heard uh, mention that uh, a very kind of shadowy company called Cayman Tempo uh, was footing the bill for that conference, and that uh, one of the FUFOR directors, uh, you know, who was, you would think, would know, uh, was funding the conference, of uh, being that they were involved in the the, the actual planning and and and, and everything for the conference. She, the director, didn't even know who was paying all these airfares and and putting people up at fancy hotels and feeding them. Can tell us about Cayman Tempo and their involvement in that conference. I never
6: heard of Cayman Tempo. I, I guess I've heard of it, but it didn't have anything to do with us. Uh, the funding was raised by the Fund for UFO Research. In 19, you know, and the way MUFON works, at the end of each conference, they tell it where the next conference is going to be, who's going to be putting it on. And so in the 1986, con- at the end of the 1986 conference, we announced that the Fund for UFO Research would put the, fir- put the, uh, the 40th anniversary UFO conference on, the 40th anniversary of UFOs. Um, uh, in Washington, D.C., at which point it became a mad scramble for how do we do it. And I was the head of the fund at the time, so I knew all the details of what was going on. Uh, we uh, made an appeal for funding. We wanted to do an international conference, a real international conference, where we had people from other countries for the first time. And we got funding from uh, uh, a number of people contributed, people, not companies. Uh, a big contribution from uh, the principal fellow Hans Uh, uh, Lichtenstein. uh and uh, hundreds of other people, I guess. I don't remember all the tech- all the fine details of the funding this was long afterwards, but it was basically money raised by the fund for your whole research And andwhiley Strieber guaranteed a certain amount of money as well if we did if we overran. Uh, our budget.
2: Wasn't that kind of Whitley's uh, coming out party? I I recalled uh, talking to somebody uh, who was there that made the comment, oh boy, we're seeing the birth of a new religion uh, when the the whole uh, communion uh, hoopla uh, started right around that time. Wasn't that his real coming out party?
6: Well, communion was published in February of 1987. Intruders by Hopkins was published in March of 1987. Uh, the, the MJ12 documents were publicized first by Timothy Good uh, in, uh, in his book Above Top Secret uh, in I think May of 1987, and then uh, Bill Moore, Jamie Chandray went public with what they had had since 1984. They had had the MJ12 documents, and they went public with that in June, I guess, of 1987. I got all the dates there. Like, yeah,
2: that's the that's book. a that's a major. Uh... That's a major row of dominoes uh, coming out in just a matter of four and months. Pre
6: precede all those dominoes was the Japan Airlines case. The FAA was investigating. So right at the beginning of 1987, you had a major publicity of, of, about UFOs when the FAA said it was going to investigate the J- Japan Airlines sighting. And then I give what you might call the, 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 the quote, the true story, unquote, of, of how I managed to write a big paper on... Uh, a Japan case uh, involving part of my investigation involved talking to John Callahan, who at the time was on the government side. You might say, but after he retired, well, he was head of the
2: later, NTS, NTSB, I think, wasn't he?
6: He was the head of the uh, investigations, right? Uh, yeah, all right. And but five ten years later, when he retired, he came out pro UFO. Right. Well, anyway, you, the point is that the, the, the Japan Airlines case, with all the publicity around that, then the Communion book, then the Intruders book, then uh, MJ12—all these things happening within weeks or months of one another—and then the big blow-up, build-up to the uh, Newfound Symposium.
1: Let's uh, go into uh, that in a moment. We've got Dr. Bruce Macabee with us, with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. <laughs>
7: Listening to GCN, proudly sponsored by UnseenNow.com. Lock down your digital life at UnseenNow.com. This is GCN.
5: Do you have relatives and friends that are convinced there is no need ever to prepare for any kind of emergency? Are these also folks you buy Christmas presents for? At 30dayfoodsupply.com, we can solve both of these problems at the same time. Go to 30dayfoodsupply.com or call 541-229-0010. We can ship your Christmas presents directly to them. Choose from our original $99 30-day food supply, our long-term storage vegan burger mixes, and other oatmeal, soups, porridges, beans, and granolas for everyday use. All products are non-gmo msg free and vegetarian most are gluten soy and nut free call 541-229-0010 today oregon trail foods and 30dayfoodsupply.com keep prices low cutting out the middleman by buying directly from their producers in oregon remember only ten dollars ships your entire order to the lower 48 visit the website 30dayfoodsupply.com call 541-229-0010 30dayfoodsupply.com 541-229-0010
17: it's that time of year again and you know what that means. Cold and flu season. <laughs> but don't worry. HerbalHealer.com has you and your loved ones covered with our safe and natural products. Cold and flu fighters like beta-glucans, olive leaf antiviral capsules, grapefruit seed extract, HHA four-herb capsules, elderberry power and Respirate. And don't forget about oregacillin for the lungs. Normally $34.95. On sale now for only $25. Vitamin D3 120-count soft gels. Only $9. 9- Whole body and homeopathic detoxes for the lungs, kidneys, liver, lymph, and brain. Normally $26.95, now just $20. HerbalHealer.com also offers correspondence courses to teach you how to handle your health naturally. And as always, new customers get a free 128-page catalog with your order. Visit HerbalHealer.com and click the winter specials button to save on our natural cold and flu-fighting products. HerbalHealer.com, healing the world with nature, one person at a time, since 1988.
5: Hello, this is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: All right, so we're going back to this rather interesting time in the late 1980s when all this stuff was coming out. At the same time, including MJ 12, and I want to ask you more about that in a moment, Dr. Bruce McAbee, but maybe you can go on with your considerations.
6: Well, as we got closer to the Mufon Symposium, of course, the press started taking an active interest. People who knew something who were going to be in the conference uh, were in, uh, getting interviews all over the place. I listed a number of things that I was involved in, and I was on Nightline and a couple of major newspapers' interviews and so on and then we had arranged to give a briefing. Well, first of all, at the National Press Club, we had uh, speakers from a number of different countries as far away as Australia, I think uh, Chile and Brazil, no, Chile and Argentina, Italy, Britain, Canada, United States, India. Uh, I don't remember exactly all the countries we had, a bunch of them. We had raised enough money to... Bring these people over and take care of them and send them back again. So it was quite an expensive conference, but we did it with the donations of a lot of people plus the the budget he, that uh, we expect uh, anyway. For
2: well, you mentioned Liechtenstein. Was it the Prince of Liechtenstein that uh, yeah, that not, not, what was his interest? How did he, how was he involved in this? How did he uh, get he drawn was,
6: in? He was he was interested in UFOs for a long time. I haven't conversed with him for thirty years now, I guess, but. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, he was uh, uh, very interested in the subject. He had to keep it quiet because he was the head of a country.
2: A <laughs> head of a country with pockets.
6: With deep pockets, not much land, but deep pockets. every square foot is worth a million bucks or something
1: like that listen there's a lot of ground to cover here and i don't want to keep jumping up with things we kind of have to because we want to get into a lot more subjects obviously one of the big events in the late 80s was the revelation about these mj-12 documents of course we had timothy good mentioning it in his book above top secret we had of course Moore and chandere but the question i have here is because it's Become controversial again because of this recent resurrected debate between Stanton Friedman and Robert Hastings, and of course, Kevin Randall doesn't believe in them either. What's your position about MJ 12?
6: Well, uh, it slants towards stans, but I don't use the documents. As you notice, I mention them in the book, and I mentioned that the CIA was apparently, at least Pandolfi, at least as puzzled as everybody else about all this stuff having to do with Richard Doty and MJ-12 and so on. Pandolfi carried out his own investigation, so far as I could tell, and, didn't, and came up with a blank. I think the color twining document is real. I've held that in my hands. I've noticed this is the one that talks about the MJ-12 special studies project, MJ-12 slash FSP. They're supposed to have a meeting in what was it, 1954. Uh, at any rate, the document is yellowed around the edges, which tells me that the thing is laid flat in a stack of documents for many years before it was stuffed into a, one of the file boxes in the uh, the National Archives for more chance to find. Anyway, um, okay. The, the, Dr. Mackaby, excuse
1: action. me. I hate to interrupt you. Just wanted to stop on some point that you can go on. Okay. The statement waiting to be found, do you think that was deliberate, that they deliberately put those documents in there so someone would locate them?
6: Uh, I, I'm sure they were put in there. They had nothing to do They had nothing to do with where they, where they were found in the file box. And, of course, according to Chandra Ray, they had received a postcard with a, a return address on it. it. made no sense until you knew what box and the file box. File in a box, uh, to look where to look for this uh, document. You remember that.
1: So the point is they, real they, or they, fake. They
6: didn't understand what that what that address meant until after they had found the document, just by a random search.
1: So you don't subscribe to the possibility that Richard Doty or people like him were responsible for any of this.
6: Well, I. I don't. I don't take any hard position on it. Uh, my argumentation is not based on whether MJ12 is real or not. Although I would say that if Roswell is real, then there's something like MJ12.
1: All right. Let's go back again through the history with the CIA and everything. And this is kind of a sidelight. You were active, of course, in the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, the organization of which Kehoe was director for a number of years. What was your take on the fact that the first head of the CIA, Admiral Cotter, was for a time part of the board of directors of NICAP? I know a lot of people were kind of suspicious of that.
6: Well, I'll tackle that in a minute, but I want to finish my comment on 1987 because it leads directly to one of the chapters in the book. As I said, we had arranged for a press conference for the international speakers then we had a special briefing for Congress. The uh, congressional aides showed up at the Rayburn building, I think it was, uh, on the day before the conference began. And then we had the conference itself on Friday and Saturday. Saturday night, we had over 500 people packed into a lecture hall auditorium. Uh, and for the first time ever, a collection of abductees uh, appeared on stage. Uh, this whole thing made a huge amount of press at the time, uh, and uh, of course, Pandolfi knew about what I was doing, and, knew, and everybody in the CIA, I guess, had read the, read the articles in the paper. So he suggested I give a talk there, and so I, uh, about a week after the conference, I uh, went into what he called the what he told me was the director's conference room, had a big long table, uh, and. Uh, to an audience of 30 or 40 or 50, I don't know, people standing room only. Uh, I told them about their own documents. Most of them, or maybe all of them, didn't even know the CIA had, uh, had been involved in UFOs. So I told them about their own documents, and I talked about various cases, and MJ-12 and all that sort of stuff. Afterwards, Pandolfi told me that I had created a lot of spies in the agency. So that's <laughs> one of the chapters these people were using there. Top secret clearances to try to probe into uh, any information they could get on flying saucers. And if they found anything they didn't tell me, I'm not surprised because I didn't have the clearance level. And anyway, you want to talk about uh, Helen Coder.
1: Right. Because uh, of the fact uh, that, yeah, because of the fact that whether it's innocent or not, and this is a classmate of Kehoe's in their youth. Whether that maybe casts a little suspicion on the organization. How does a guy like that get involved in a civilian UFO research group?
6: Well, he's a buddy of uh, Kehoe. That's how I got involved. And that was the main thing that Kehoe trusted him. Uh, I remember Helen Cotter made some public statements that were in the uh, New York Times uh, saying that through threats of retribution and secrecy had been maintained. Uh, I'm not getting the exact wording right. It's been a long time since I've read it, but basically it was blaming, blaming secrecy for making it look like the real phenomenon was being covered up. I wish I could remember the exact phrasing that he used Sure. or you know, was publicized, but he was clearly not against being on the UFO subcommittee. He, from what he said, it sounded like he was aware that the subject was being covered up.
1: You would think also that somebody who was in his position at the time he was in that position would have had intimate knowledge of the nature of the cover-up. This is one of the top guys over there. How could he not know all the details? That's the thing I wonder about. We can go into that a bit more in our next segment before we go on to some other subjects with Dr. Bruce McAbee. By the way, I did get a note from one of the representatives over at MUFON. They wanted me to mention this, so I'll do it. The executive director of the Mutual UFO Network, Jan Harzan, has placed an online fundraiser on the Kickstarter website. Their stated goal is to raise $78,000 For a new global database for UFO sighting reports, you can see the prototype of the homepage for the improved for the improved database at www.mufonredesign.com. That's mufonredesign.com, or go to the Kickstarter website to see a video explaining some plans for the new system. It ends Tuesday, December second. So if you've heard the show before them, check it out. With Gene and Chris, you're in the ParaCast.
7: Great minds think alike. The network for the independent minded. The Genesis Communications Network. G.C.N.
4: Ever need direction or guidance? Ask the Light. Like to have a quick source of insight and inspiration? Ask the Light. Would you like an easy way to spread kindness in this crazy world? Ask the Light. Ask the Light Miracle Cards from AskTheLight.com were created in the aftermath of a true miracle. Beautiful underwater photography capturing the dance of water and light are combined with inspirational words to create the 53-card deck of Ask the Light Miracle Cards in a custom, easy-case box ask the light miracle cards speak directly to your heart and opens you to everyday miracles spread some kindness by giving a card away it's a great way to connect with people these cards bring blessings to all that experience them experience the many benefits for yourself visit askthelight.com to enjoy early holiday specials buy one deck for $18.50 or two for $30 they make great gifts for friends and family too ask the light miracle cards at askthelight.com
8: Alex Jones here. For the last two years I've been working with top doctors nutritionists and chemists to design a nutraceutical formulation that has truly life changing health benefits so many other formulations out there contain toxic ingredients, synthetic additives and even GMOs introducing the all new ancient defense herbal immunity blend crafted with over 14 key ancient herbs and extracts to supercharge and prepare your body for what experts admit is the most dangerous season of the year. We have rejected hundreds of other formulations in our quest to bring you what is simply the most powerful and comprehensive proprietary formula that we have ever created in the realm of herbal immunity. Experience the benefits of combining over 14 ancient herbs and extracts with exciting new advances in nutraceutical science. Now is the time to secure ancient defense for you and your family. Visit InfoWarsLife.com or call 1-888-253-3139. That's InfoWarsLife.com.
7: My name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast.
1: Don't forget, plus.theparacast.com, plus, P-L-U-S, dot, theparacast.com. Check out information about our new premium service called Paracast Plus. And we start up with ad-free versions of the Paracast, higher resolution copies so it sounds better on your iPod, your iPhone, your iPad, whatever you listen to it on. We have a chat room, and starting this week, we'll be debuting after the Paracast, the After the Paracast podcast with color commentary and more, plus.theparacast.com. Dr. Bruce Maccabee is here, and I was just mentioning briefly about the fact that the first had the CIA got involved in the civilian UFO research organization, and do you think maybe they kept him in the dark on any of this?
6: He may well have known the the, the, the big secret, but this was and this is his way of getting out information that should keep the uh, the non cleared people interested in the subject. In other words, a way of sort of leaking enough information, and lending lending his. Uh, Thatcher to the idea that there really was something going on without actually leaking any classified information. I presume you're aware that Concord was not the only CIA guy to be in NICAP. The Border Control had a couple of people, and the last NICAP director was a CIA agent. There have been allegations of of CIA trying to infiltrate NICAP.
1: But you don't accept that.
6: Well, I know that the the members, several members, were part of the CIA. Whether this was intentional or infiltration to learn, quote, secrets, unquote, that, that NICAP had. Uh, NICAP had a whole bunch of sighting cases, uh, 10,000 of them or something like that. That was the only information, really, that was the real value in NICAP, especially by the time NICAP closed in 1980. There is a new NICAP, by the way, which is on the web. Uh, not related to the old one
1: just taking an old name and rebooting it also from time to time over the years one of the other key figures at NICAP, richard hall who basically was the office manager in the 60s the keyhole wasn't in there every single day he'd come in a couple of times a week but richard hall ran the show and some people talked about his possible military and intelligence connections what do you say about that
6: well, he t- publicly stated that he had been uh, the CIA had tried to recruit him, and he had turned him down. Um, as for any other uh, any other aspects of his military, I don't know about.
1: All right, let's move to some other case histories here. Obviously, there's a segment in your book where you talk a lot about your involvement in the Sicaro, New Mexico case, which to this day is considered one of the best UFO cases ever. So how did you get involved in the investigation of that?
6: Well, I I didn't get involved. I included it because it was in the FBI file. Ah. And the FBI agent was one of the guys who were one of the first people on the spot to interview uh, Zamora. As a matter of fact, they stayed up all night or or until 2 o'clock in the morning or something like that uh, to interview Zamora. Uh, and then he wrote a teletype message, which I sh- actually started the book off with uh, the, the beginning of the teletype message.
2: Well, uh, Bruce, you know, I, I read uh, the, the Socorro section and I was I was kind of taken aback that uh, you never mentioned Ray Stanford's incredibly accurate and excellent book, uh, Socorro Saucer in the Pentagon Pantry. And you also never mentioned the collection of uh, metal scrapings that were bladed off uh, the landing uh, strut in the ravine there that was uh, subsequently taken uh, through Richard Hall's uh, connections to the Goddard uh, materials, uh, Space Flight Materials Lab uh, to be never returned. Uh, you never mentioned any of those things. Well, what, are you, what are your comments about well, I- Ray's book, Ray's work on that case, and uh, some of the, uh, the interesting uh, subterfuge that went on with that physical evidence?
6: Yeah, well, I think that's all true, but I was just sticking to basically the, the FBI part of it. I copied the FBI, what the FBI had said, and put, a, put it into some of its historical background. I wasn't intending it to be a uh, the, the world's most complete analysis of a Socorro case. Right. Yeah, to, but to wouldn't you think that the
2: metal uh, sample uh, being taken and preliminary results uh, being very exciting— uh, given to Stanford and other members of his organization, uh, his investigative group there. And then, boom, all of a sudden the samples, uh, are, are gone. Uh, and, and they're, they're given a runaround by, uh, by these, uh, individuals. And, and this led to a, uh, a pissing match between Stanford and, and, and Richard Hall for 40 plus years. Uh, I would think that that would be, uh, something that at least should, should get a mention. Well,
6: uh, if you had written the book, I suppose I would have. <laughs> Instead, I took up space talking about um, Quentin Miller's version of uh, impressions. Uh, and as I said, I, I put it in there mainly because it was, uh, the, it's the last UFO case that the FBI actually was involved in investigating, and that was unofficial. So I put in the part that had to do with the FBI and the part that had to do with the Air Force. I would certainly defer to uh, Ray's book if I were going to uh, try to do a major investigation of the Sakhal case.
2: You do know that uh, you know the film that was taken from Officer Jordan uh, and, and not returned because uh, it, it had been fogged, you know that Hynek later in a videotape interview with Stanford uh, a number of years later did confirm that the film was damaged by radiation and that it wasn't a return to Jordan right away because it might hold clues to an exotic propulsion system. Are you aware that Hynek went on the record publicly and stated that?
6: No. Oh, I may have been years ago. I don't remember it,
2: though. Ray's book, Jordan, uh, signed an affidavit uh, telling exactly what happened with that film. And I think that's a key piece of evidence for, for Socorro, along with the metal sample, that was uh, gathered by by Ray with witnesses, uh a completely intact evidence chain all the way to Goddard Space Flight Center and the Materials Lab. Uh the I think the Socorro case is one of the bedrock cases, I think, of ufology. And and these uh very, very important details, I think, are are something that the public uh you know needs to be reminded of. And uh the fact that there was a lot of runaround uh by official government uh people, the the Air Force, uh, the FBI and others uh, really did, um, you know, create some barriers for, for the truth to come out about the case. Uh, would you agree with that?
6: Well, yeah, I'd agree with that. Also, the skeptics <laughs> tried to put the kibosh on the case, you know, class's explanation that it was a, a big hoax by uh, the, on the part of the um, mayor and stuff like that. But like I said, I was not trying to do a 100% definitive analysis of uh, the Socorro case. I confined myself to basically what was in the FBI documents.
2: Right. Well, did you know that two days after the Socorro case, that a um, a plant materials analysis case, uh, who is uh, an expert in radiation biology, was rushed to the site on Sunday the 26th of 1964, April 1964, and was accompanied by... Air Force Major William Connor and Sergeant David Moody. They brought radiation detecting equipment uh, that was provided by, I think, FBI agent. Uh, uh, if I believe, if, Burns, if if memory serves me correct. Uh, do you know the results? Uh, did you ever hear the results of that uh, that plant analysis? Not that I recall. Yeah, yeah. there's so much about Socorro that uh, there's little nuances uh, here and there that do include involvement uh, by the CIA, or by the FBI, rather. And again, I think these are important facts that should be brought out uh, about the... Yeah, there, these are just a few of the facts that should be brought out about this case that I think are extremely important. Bruce? Yes? Go ahead. You want to finish up before we break?
6: Well, as I said, I was confining myself to what I found in the FBI file, plus a little bit of Add added information on what I'm trying to do, um, 100% definitive analysis of the, the Socorro case, if I were, I certainly would include all the stuff you've been talking about.
1: All right, fair enough. We'll leave it at that. and We'll get on to some other subjects in our next segment. By the way, we also have a few questions from listeners. We're going to try to g- get a few of them in there, but... Obviously, we have so many things to talk about with a book like this, a book of this scope, that we can't cover everything. I also want to touch a little bit about the possible interest by the Clintons in UFOs and a certain report prepared for them. Neighbors, we don't always get a chance to pre announce a guest that far in advance, but we do have Peter Robbins scheduled for the PowerCast next week. Of course, he was one of those responsible for Left at Eastgate, the book on the Rendlesham case. He's done a lot of work on abductions. That's Peter Robbins coming next week on the show. we got more to come with Gene and Chris. We're talking to Dr. Bruce McAbee.
7: You're in the
2: Paracast.
7: You're listening to GCN, proudly sponsored by UnseenNow.com. Lock down your digital life at UnseenNow.com. This is GCN.
12: This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you?
0: Welcome back to the Paracast The gold standard of paranormal radio And now, here's Gene Steinberg
1: Dr. Bruce Maccabees here about the FBI, CIA, UFO connection and as I said, we got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm kind of jumping through topics and years. And we can't spend, you know, an hour on each one, but I'll try our best. Just looking at maybe a summary as we get to our final third of the show here. As we look over the interest of these agencies in the subject, is there something to disclose behind those closed doors of secrecy? Is there a real... Truth to be had, because people have been asking year after year for disclosure. For disclosure. What's your take on it?
6: Most of the FBI stuff was uh, completed in the late fifties, uh, and uh, except for the call case, uh, one case which apparently was an abduction in 1967, the CIA might have something to confess, but they didn't confess it to me <laughs> when I was there, so I don't know for sure.
1: So, does anybody, any agency within the government, do you think? have all this secret knowledge about Roswell, if it was real, possible other cases, something to say, hey, we're being visited by ET or whatever? What guilty knowledge the government has? Does an agency have the secret? Do they really know? Is there a, something that we can get them to disclose? Or is that just an uh, excuse, uh, disclosure?
6: Based on based on Vandenberg's action of kicking, you know, you know, rejecting the, uh, the estimate, I would say that the Air Force intelligence has been the point squad on this all along. If anybody has to confess covering up, it's the Air Force. Um, as I try to do in my book, demonstrate that they did orchestrate a cover up uh, by rege- rejecting, not, not allowing uh, interplanetary to be a possible explanation for any UFO sighting. No. I also pointed out in the book the fact that I did not find clear evidence of a CIA covering up stuff did not mean that there was no secret a secret group along with Alexander I assume there is a secret group somewhere Alexander John Alexander in his book argues that he was never able to find that secret group and I wasn't able to find it either but uh, I defer to Kit Green's comment that uh he had interviewed a number of people, and some people, top-level people, and he, some people knew something and some didn't, but it gave him the impression that there was something going on somewhere and just couldn't get to it. My guess is it's a contractor type of operation where there's a very thin pipeline, not many people are of a lot of money that's flowing to some contractor analyzing was what, what's available. Clearly, if Roswell is real and there's crashed debris and bodies, there's some major work going on somewhere. Uh, at the very least, they're controlling access to the information. At Roswell, after there have been no crashes, there's still a uh, uh, cover up of the conclusion that some of these things seen in the sky are interplanetary.
1: So, would the point people responsible for this secret be largely in private industry with maybe just a few people in the government in on what's going on?
6: That's what I would say you minimize the number of people who know the secret in order to minimize the possibility that it gets out and depending on who who it is in the government that knows the secret um, yeah, it's probably the government's probably less trustworthy Government employees may be less trustworthy than contractor employees in this regard, but the real question comes down to why. Don't they let us know what's really going on? Uh, Is there something that they know that we don't, that makes it clear that it would be detrimental to civilization or something like that? If uh, they were to have, quote, complete disclosure, unquote,
2: well, what about the Office of Naval Intelligence? You were in the Navy. I've been hearing uh, whisperings uh, all over the place over the years about the involvement of the uh, ONI in investigating UFOs and in having some sort of uh, a presence in this particular subject. Over the years, what have you heard about ONI's uh, uh, knowledge? Do you think that they're involved in any sort of cover-up?
6: Back in the late 70s, I the Freedom of Information Act request, the Office of Naval Intelligence for any information on UFOs. And they sent me a couple of pages of analysis of, uh, the Tremonton and, uh, Utah films, the film that I talked about earlier, done by the, the, Na- the National Photo Interpretation Center. Uh, they had copies of the documents written by the photo interpretation guys. Now, I sent the, uh, Freedom of Information Act guy, a copy of a document I found in the FBI file, which was a report of uh, by naval aviators in Alaska uh, seeing balls of light flying around and them chasing the balls of light and so on. This is where they had airplanes up there all the time uh, in case of Soviet incursions across the Bering Strait. So I, I not only did ask for them for the documents, I said, here they are. Can you find these? And there was a document related to uh, these sightings in Alaska, and it had commentary on it by uh, some operational Navy research group, Op 344 or whatever the number was, something like that. And I sent that to the uh, the Freedom of Information Act guy by the name of Krochalis and he said they searched all up and down, left, right, and sideways. They weren't even able to find the document that I had, And so it only existed in the FBI file, I guess. Uh, And they couldn't find anything else other than these photo interpretation analyses of the uh, Clemington and uh, Great Falls movies.
4: Well, it sounds like...
6: uh, My Freedom of Information Act didn't turn off anything that the Navy was doing.
2: Uh It sounds like Uh, they've been really covering their tracks pretty well, don't you think?
6: Well, they would have covered their tracks very well, yes. Uh, It would hear about things like... uh, tracking fast-moving underwater objects in the tongue of the ocean or uh, Navy cases uh, like that, or and you might include uh, the um, Operation Main Brace cases in September of 1952 as Navy. Uh, so I don't know why they didn't have anything related to that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I remember reading the incredible statistic uh, stated by Ivan T. Sanderson in his book, Invisible Residence, which is about submerged uh, UFOs and and UFOs in water. And he made the outrageous statement that 50 percent of all UFO sightings uh, are somehow connected with bodies of water. So you would think that the Navy, if that's true, the Navy would have uh, voluminous files on on uh, you know cases that involve UFOs and in water, I it's it's mind blowing to me that uh, there's almost no FOIA results coming back uh, from from the Navy.
6: Yeah, well, I never. Uh, I, I know some people who are in the Navy, the Navy laboratories who are interested in the subject, um, but they didn't indicate that there was a they were part of a research group that devoted to. Uh, Uh, UFO analysis. I I spoke at a uh, lecture with Naval Installation China Lake one time, and we went out for dinner afterwards with a bunch of people. Uh, People were throwing throwing things around, so on. But again, there was no indication that there was somebody there who knew a lot more than I did. uh, or was covering up some sort of an ongoing research group.
1: Did anyone from the military ever come to you and say, "You know what, you're"? kind of walking on eggshells here, maybe move away from a particular topic or exploration?
6: Well, the place that I work told me, we don't care what you're doing in your spare time, as long as you don't get us involved, that is the name of the laboratory. So I would say I work for the Navy, but I wouldn't, wouldn't put the uh, name of the laboratory on Of course, I put it in my book because it's all years old, years ago now, uh, but at the time, now, there was one time when I was reprimanded for giving a UFO lecture to a group of um, uh, retired Air Force colonels, uh, and this lecture was given at uh, you know, Fort Myers in Washington D.C. Uh, and after I gave him this lecture, I talked about some, uh, I talked about uh, nuclear UFOs over a nuclear site. This, this lecture was way back in the early 80s.
1: Let's find out what happened when you gave that lecture in our next segment. Dr. Bruce Maccabee is here with Gene and Chris. You're in The Paracast. <laughs> Neighbors, are you tired of dealing with a slow web hosting provider? Well, check out A2 Hosting and their screaming fast Swift server platform. They even have SSDs that load pages 300% faster than the competition. Ready to give your site a speed boost? Well, tell you what, neighbors, head on over to a2hosting.com. That's A2, that's number two, a2hosting.com. Check out their Prime Hosting account. And get this, neighbors, they're even giving you an exclusive 25% off discount For all our listeners, 25%. And remember, their Guru Crew support team is standing by 24-7, 365 days a year to answer any of your questions. Now, to get the discount, use the coupon code Gene when you check out.
4: On Facebook, on the news, and in conversations with friends, we're bombarded every day with advice on how to be healthier, from gluten-free and non-GMO diets to how much exercise and sleep the body needs. But how much have you heard about alkalizing the body? AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops are a holistic and natural way to get your body's pH levels back in balance. Just a few drops in water will help your body rid itself of harmful waste, and even the healthiest of diets can be complemented with your daily use of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops. Who isn't looking for more vibrance, vigor, and energy? Now buy two bottles of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops and get $10 off your order. Visit Alcavision.com or call 800-518-7615. Alcavision Plasma pH Drops are packed with a powerful combination of the most alkaline minerals and compounds. Open the door to greater health, vitality, and zest for life. Alkalize your body. Supercharge your health. Call 800-518-7615 or head to alcavision.com. What good is a big Berkey water filter?
16: filters can last for five to ten years that means big savings big berkey the one that's powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water get a big berkey today at big gcn listeners receive five percent off all ceramic filter systems visit our website or call one 99 berkey that's eight seven seven ninety nine 99 berkey big berkey water filters for the love of clean water We'd like to hear from
0: you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Okay, early 80s, you're giving this lecture to some Air Force people.
6: I think it was a society of old crows or something like that. I forget the exact name they call themselves, so but they were mainly criminals in the Babylon Air Force. And after the lecture was over, some old guy, compared to me, uh, looked like he was been in his 60s. He said, you, you can't talk about that stuff or worse to that effect. He was, he was uh, uh, I don't know if he'd known in advance what the lecture was going to be about, but he was essentially uh, admonishing me against talking about UFOs. Uh, That's the closest I ever got to uh, being told I should shut up.
1: Of course, I wonder in situations like that, where if they talk to people like you and say something, you might report to the public what they did, and that just makes you look more credible.
6: Well, yeah, I think this guy's comment was probably spur of the moment on his part. And, of course, I I noted the comment and uh, basically ignored it. Went right on talking. I went on went and talked to a, another guy who had a, was an Air Force captain, I believe, who said that he had been in charge of a missile base in Utah, and the same thing had happened at his place.
1: Let's just move in our final three segments, catch as catch can, to other subjects. Okay. We think about this now because there may be another Clinton vying for the White House very soon. The reported interest by the Clintons in UFOs dating back to the 1990s. Some observations?
6: As well, you know from reading the book, I ended up uh, writing a briefing for the uh, president, Clinton science advisor. Right. In 1993, a few months after Clinton had uh, taken office. Uh, that was a result of um, Lawrence Rockefeller and Scott Jones. Uh, Lawrence Rockefeller? I presume everybody recognizes the name. Scott Jones was a uh, active UFO investigator. Uh, as far as, and he was the head of the so-called Human Potential Foundation. Uh, a long background on Mr. Jones. But in any case, they were they wanted to brief Clinton on what was known about UFOs, sort of an attempt to get some presidential level disclosure going. And they uh, they knew uh, Scott Jones knew. Gibbons personally and uh, told Gibbons they want to get a lot of time with Clinton to talk about you. Well, they didn't say initially what it was. And um, Lawrence Rockefeller was a big donor, so of course he could get time any he wanted, practically. And so they made an arrangement with Gibbons that they would brief Gibbons. He said, you, you, you can talk to the president, but you have to get it past me, in fact. So, Lawrence Rockefeller and Scott Jones uh, made an arrangement to talk about UFOs to John Gibbons, and Gibbons was petrified, according to Pandolfi, the father of losing credibility by talking about UFOs. So I was I was unaware of all this until uh, 13th, I guess it was of April, and I was at home doing some work, and uh, I got a phone call from Pandolfi saying, uh, "I want you to write a." provide a briefing for John Gibbons, the president's science advisor, at which point I, my job sort of fell to the floor. It's that uh, obviously a, an amazing opportunity, so I started thinking about typical presentations take like a week or more to get develop all the view graphs and the uh, script and everything else that goes along with it. So then Pandolfi says it's got to be ready, ready by tomorrow. And uh I began wondering how the rise is gonna do this. And then he said it's gotta be faxed to the uh Gibbons office uh by eight o'clock in the morning. So I sat down and wrote out what I could in that amount of time and uh said it at eight o'clock in the morning and a few hours later I learned that the meeting had been held at seven (laughs) thirty. Typical governmental situation. My briefing paper had no impact on whatever the, the discussion was when, Lawrence Rockefeller and Scott Jones actually talked to Gibbons.
2: Well, why do you think that the whole subject didn't get legs and actually uh, become a talking point uh, in the administration? It it almost seems like it it just totally disappears from uh, from the scene from that point on.
6: Well, it didn't disappear from that point on. Anybody who ta- knows what Grant Cameron has uh collector there are, you can write under the Freedom of Information Act all the papers generated about UFOs at, at the White House. The Rockefeller push, you might say, went on for another year, a couple of years. Uh, I think it was 95 or 96 that... Uh,
2: yeah, I'm saying uh, after that particular initiative, uh, it seems to have disappeared off the radar uh, for uh, the most uh,
6: part. Uh, right. Yeah, right. After, after 96 there was nothing, if that's what you mean. Supposedly Clinton and uh, Mrs. Clinton were briefed when they were on vacation at Rockefeller's ranch in Wyoming. After that, you
2: don't hear anything about it. Right, and that was about the time that I I uh, met Rockefeller, and he did express his frustration over uh, the lack of, of of response by the administration. The the whole issue seemed to have kind of spun its wheels, and then, and then just. You know, like I said, fell off the radar, and he was he was very frustrated by that because he thought he had put together, you know, some slam dunk information that would be impossible for the president and his uh, and Givens and and others in the administration to ignore.
6: I was at a uh, we had a little mini conference, I guess you could say, at Rockefeller's ranch in the fall of '93, uh, and uh, I and a number of other people gave presentations there. On the subject and various aspects, I talk a lot about the New Zealand case, for example. And um, so far as I could tell, there's no no net result of of that. Uh, I I was I was advised by my boss that his boss had wanted me to write some UFO or send him up some UFO documents because they had heard they had a request from A a Navy admiral. Who, uh, Lawrence Rockefeller and Scott Jones knew. I don't know who it was, but this navy admiral had called up the captain in charge of the laboratory where I worked and asked, "Is Bruce might be crazy or worse to that effect?" And so that question worked its way down through the ranks to my boss, <laughs> and my boss didn't think I was crazy. So, uh, and he said the captain of the lab wants to read some of your work. So I sent some of my uh, best writing. I the chain or commander or captain. I never heard anything else about it after that, but I guess they decided, since, since I wasn't fired, I guess I was, they decided I wasn't crazy after all.
2: So so they decided you were sane after all.
6: <laughs> yeah,
2: right. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, that explains it right
1: now, Chris. That's why sometimes in my life I've worked at a job and they've decided they'd rather have somebody else do that job. So maybe they determined but I was a little bit too crazy for it. No, that's am not saying that. <laughs> Let me tell our listeners we have that new service, plus.thepowercast.com, the PowerCast Plus, P-L-U-S dot the PowerCast dot com. If you join up five bucks a month, $50 a year, you get the ad-free version of the show. None of those inserted ads. Higher resolution and extra content. In fact, we're going to introduce a new segment Called After the Paracast, which will be an irregular segment where Chris and I just talk, shop, and sometimes talk about the show without interruptions, without a clock. But the clock is moving right now. We've got Dr. Bruce McAbee with us. I'm Gene Steinberg with Chris O'Brien. You're in The the
7: Paracast. Not just an alternative to the mainstream media. We're the premier independent talk radio network. We are GCN.
18: expert in nutrition, diet, weight loss, immune system, and I specialize in chiropractic. My 15 years of professional experience has taught me the four keys to vibrant health, a balanced muscular skeletal system, an integrated nervous system, a flowing lymphatic system, and a body filled with over 90 essential nutrients. This has been a secret too long. Actualize your potential, reverse disease. Call me, Dr. Z. Two zero one nine four five one one seven seven two zero one nine four five one one seven seven 945 1177 201 evalyourself.com.
14: Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Three square meals you'll need in an emergency. So the Freeze Dry Guy's three square meal unit sale is just the ticket. A variety pack of tasty, nourishing breakfast, lunch, and dinner on sale now. Breakfast is Freeze Dry Guy's favorite. Hot oatmeal and sweet dehydrated bananas. Lunch is Mountain House freeze dried hot macaroni and cheese and crisp green beans. And dinner is Mountain House long grain wild rice pilaf and hearty beef stew, vegetables, and gravy. Call Freeze Dry Guy and ask for details on the 120 26 serving three square meals unit. One case normally 16437. Sale price at only 138.90. Save over 25 bucks. Get two or three cases and save even more. Or ask about Freeze Dry Guy's Fall Chili Special. Always free shipping to the Lower 48 States. Call 866 404 3663 or click freezedryguy.com And hurry. The Fall Chili Special and Three Square Meals Unit are on sale while supplies last. From the Freeze Dry Guy. The finest freeze-dried and dehydrated foods available for long-term storage, period.
6: This is Jacques Vallée. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold
15: standard of paranormal radio.
1: This is the Paracast with Gene and Chris. We're going to go on with lots and lots of discussions in our remaining two segments. Dr. Bruce McAbee. Since we brought in the issue of President Clinton, do you think any of the presidents have any real knowledge of what's going on about this subject? I don't want to leave that standing.
6: Well, a few presidents who have been part of the intelligence community community may know, typically, you know, why would you tell a president he's going to be here for no more than eight years, maybe only four years, and he's primarily interested in the political situations. One doesn't know how a president might react to to learning that, so why take a chance? Why why, why would the intelligence community tell any president uh, that UFOs are real and we've got crashed discs and all that sort of stuff? Because it introduces a new uncertainty into civilization. If there's one thing that civilization can't stand, it's uncertainty.
1: What about in the early years when UFOs were first becoming ubiquitous what about president truman eisenhower do you think maybe they knew more than their successors
6: they may well have because they were the top of the of the uh intelligence communities and uh and as they were president i suspect that uh the uh main informa- major information went quickly underground but there were enough people aware of um first hand had first-hand awareness of the subject, either by sightings or knowing people who had sightings, uh, there are enough uh, for top-level people who knew that uh, it didn't change; wouldn't change much to tell uh, tell them the, the, the truth. They're already coping with whatever the implications of the truth were.
1: Let me just ask you a quick question about that, though, and that is. In the event something happened that forced the issue—a mass landing or something—wouldn't there have to be a contingency plan to sit the president down, his national security people, and say, "Oh, by the way, we didn't tell you this before."
6: Yeah, well, uh, certainly, that the, that feeling may well have occurred during the 1952, the summer '52, which I call the year of the UFO, uh, when there were sightings coming in on July twenty sixth or whatever it was. Uh, there were like 50 sightings in one day, uh, from all over the place. Uh, and at that point, they may well have thought that the invasion was imminent. Uh, and they couldn't have told Truman what was going on. But uh, well, I don't know, it's a question you can only speculate on.
2: Well, we do have a number of questions uh, at forum.theparacast.com in our question thread where our listeners, Bruce, can ask questions of our guests, and we do have some in here. This one comes from Randall, uh, who uh, calls himself Ufology. Uh, He's one of our most uh, (laughs) prolific posters. He's well over 5,000 posts at the forum. And he's wondering, in your 1990 book, The Gulf Breeze Sightings, by Ed and Francis Walters, you wrote, in my opinion, this is not a hoax. After an extensive investigation, I've concluded that everything described here actually happened more or less as they have described it. Today, are you still of the same opinion? And if not, why not?
6: I'm still of the same opinion.
2: Okay. <laughs> that was a a short, punchy answer.
6: Well, I, I, I outlined the reason for my, my belief. I was certainly aware of all the criticisms and uh, stuff related to double exposure hoaxing and everything. Uh, uh went on to, was uh, accused the accusations against Ed Walters and so on, and I tried to outline my reasons for believing that uh, things happened that he could not have hoaxed. Uh, and so anybody who asked that question, I presume has the book in there uh, therefore can read my chapter. Uh, there's other stuff on the uh, on my webpage. Uh, one case in particular, January 8, 1990, which was a multiple witness case with photography uh, that involved Ed, but other, other people too, uh, which I find uh, quite stands apart from her. Uh, the to saying that 87, had uh, but anybody who wants to uh, can read that on my website, www.brewmack.8k.com.
2: Okay, so you're saying because of all the other sightings that were taking place uh, during that same general time period, that is an indication to you that there was activity down there and it couldn't all have been generated by a person like Ed Walters uh, hoaxing uh, photographs?
6: Also, the you um, 100 uh, or more other witnesses, it would be illogical uh, to say that uh, uh, Ed, was, uh, Ed was hoaxing all the pictures. And at the same time, except that any one of the witnesses who claimed they out the same thing was all was was telling the truth. Uh, in other words, Ed was guilty by photography, to use his phrase. If he hadn't taken any photos, it would have been like anybody else's uh, um, sightings, I guess.
2: Right. Well, here's here's another question that we have. Uh, this one's from Blowfish, who's been. A poster at forum.theparacast.com dot com since January of 2010, and he's he's speculating, uh, kind of riffing here a little bit, and he's wondering if you think there are two types of space programs controlled by China, Russia, and the USA, one that's a public relations program and another one that's secret and military run. Uh,
6: I'm sure there are secret military programs, but they've gone much farther than. Uh... The uh, the known programs is hard to say. I, I could I could only speculate. But I remember back in 1980s, going to a, uh, 1980 of uh, plus or minus a year, going to a week-long seminar uh, for uh, budding young uh, program managers um, in which all sorts of things were discussed and some references were made to what, what they called the Black Shuttle. This is when shuttles were just beginning, and uh, the Black Shuttle presumably was uh, an Air Force project uh, that was uh, a secret. Uh, I, never, I didn't pursue that at the time, so I don't know how far these uh, top secret uh, military spacecraft could have gone but at that point uh, they were, as i said they were talking about the black shuttle
2: going to be starting up sometime which would have been in the 80s well bruce what do you think of this movement uh within base uh program to privatize and go with uh with corporate uh entities uh, like uh SpaceX Elon Musk um orbital technologies uh know robert bigelow in his uh bigelow aerospace do you think that this move into Uh, the private uh, sector uh, is going to help divulge uh, information about UFOs, uh, possibly uh, artifacts on the moon, for instance, or do you think that this is going to further hinder any sort of disclosure?
6: Well, I don't think it will have an impact on disclosure unless one of these organizations runs into something absolutely convincing, I like uh, if they discover a, a an obelisk on the moon, (laughs) uh, or something like that. Um, If somebody crashes into an unknown uh, alien spacecraft, and uh, uh, they get pieces of it, uh, I think it would take something pretty convincing to uh, have an impact on one of these programs that you are just talking about. But uh, the the real question is, if they ran into something, is there a fine print In a contract, that says if you run into something that's clearly alien, you have to give it up to uh, such and such a government uh, organization.
2: Well, that makes sense for the U.S., but what about uh, China? What about India? Do you think if they come up with some sort of uh, amazing slam-dunk evidence of artifacts on the moon, let's say, As an example, do you think that they would release that information just to embarrass the United States or to put pressure on the United States, possibly to disclose uh, more openly uh, the extent of their knowledge? Let's have the answer
1: our next segment, the final segment with Dr. Bruce McAbee and Gene and Chris. You're in the Pericast. Mm
7: UnseenNow.com. Proud sponsor of GCN. Unseen Now's unparalleled encryption tools. Keep your communications secure. GCN.
0: Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit Rockoids.com.
7: That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. We all have our own idea about what being safe and secure means. The door's locked. Bills are paid. You've got a job that keeps the lights on and a home to call your own. But what happens when Mother Nature throws a curveball? I'm telling you to take cover. Are you prepared to live without electricity or passable roads for weeks at a time? Do you even have a plan B? If you do... Are you willing to bet your life on it? Children left
18: with no homes. And no one's coming to help them. them.
7: The first step towards self-reliance in the face of disaster is a visit to MyPatriotSupply.com. There you'll find the absolute best prices on storable foods, non-GMO seeds, emergency water filtration devices, and so much more. All orders over $49 qualify for free shipping in the lower 48 states. Call 866-229-0927. That's 866-229-0927. And speak to one of our preparedness advisors. Today, or visit us at mypatriotsupply.com. Remember, before it's time to survive, it's time to prepare.
6: This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books.
15: You're listening to the Paracast.
1: Remember, plus.thepowercast.com, plus.thepowercast.com. Sign up for our premium plus package, $5 a month, $50 a year, and we'll be adding some new special features. Okay. New special features, including after the power cast.
2: Chris, you want to go through that
1: question one more time for Dr. Maccabee in our final segment?
2: Sure. Because we're seeing other countries like India and China starting to go to the moon, uh, have a more robust uh, presence in space. Do you think if these countries, discover some sort of slam dunk uh, information that's, uh, you know, highly sensational. Let's say artifacts on the moon would be the obvious example. Do you think that they would uh, disclose this uh, to embarrass the United States possibly or to put pressure on the United States to be more forthcoming about our knowledge of uh, what's really going on with UFOs and uh, supposed visitation? Well,
6: first part of the question ought to be would they release uh, the information anyway? Whether to embarrass the United States or not, uh, there may be some secret agreement that if they run into clear, clearly alien technology somehow or other, they're going to keep quiet about it. Uh, yeah, they, they, they might release it. I don't know if they, if they say, oh, Biddy, really? we can embarrass the United States by releasing this information. If, this, if there's something about this information that has convinced the U.S. government that it shouldn't be released, that same information probably would convince the Chinese
1: or the Indians. Sure, but what about on. the Iranians? What about these rogue nations? Do you think they will have the same concerns? What about North Korea?
6: Well, It depends on the information that's being withheld. And yeah. speculate.
2: Yeah, they don't have space programs, Gene. I mean, if we're, if we're,
1: which yeah, they sure, did. but that doesn't mean they don't have information. Maybe it doesn't mean that a UFO can't crash in North Korea or in Iran. Or in any of these other countries. You know, they have UFO sightings too.
6: Sure. If a UFO crash in Iran, would they run and tell out of the United States that we got one? Or would they cover it up? I don't know.
2: They sure didn't cover up and somehow managing to hijack one of our drones there a few years back.
6: <laughs> but that's not that's not impossible technology or an impossible sighting. Uh they're starting off from the point of view that UFOs don't exist, therefore they, they you can't get a crashed one. If a crashed one comes along, then this changes the whole game, and they may follow along the same line of thought as uh, the Air Force, U.S. Air Force did back in 1947. The, the bottom line would be, Is it, uh, I'm Chinese, or I'm Iranian, or I'm Afghanistanian, or I'm South Africa, or wherever. Is it going to do me any good to release this information? And the answer to that, of course, is going to depend upon the person's culture, background, and all sorts of stuff. If, if they conclude that it's not going to be a good thing, they probably won't.
2: Right. In other words, there's got to be a, a, a real plus uh, side. to, payoff somewhere.
6: to Follow the money.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Blowfish has another question here, and you know, you bring, uh, you brought up uh, several very uh, important cases uh, that you discuss uh, at, at, at some length in your book. He wants to know what is your best UFO case that you've investigated during your research, and he also mentions that he has uh, bought your book and he really enjoys it. He says it's a very good read.
6: So, what were you going to say? Favorite um... case important when I've investigated is the New Zealand sightings because of the, the amount of data left over. Certainly, the Greenville uh, photos, 1950 year, very interesting. I got a lot of stuff on my website about that. Those are... Uh, it's an interesting photo case because it's either a real thing or a hoax. There's no halfway point, and, but you only have two people making a claim and a photograph. In the New Zealand case, you've got multiple witnesses who uh, were flying on this airplane multiple witnesses to appearances and disappearances of the lights around the aircraft. You've got a tape recording made on the aircraft by a reporter. You've got a 16-millimeter color movie made on the airplane by a uh, movie uh, cameraman. You've got the pilot and the co-pilot and uh, a sound recording person. Uh, uh, You
2: have radar data as well.
6: And you also have the ground radar and you have some instances one instance in particular of ground radar where the uh, plane is flying essentially southward away from the radar, and uh, the radar is picking up a target behind the aircraft, then it picks up a target on the right-hand side of the aircraft, then suddenly the aircraft target gets twice as large as it ought to be. Now, I've written a big paper on radar analysis and how this is essentially an impossibility unless you actually have some radar reflective object close to the aircraft to sort of like stretch out the uh, um, the little arc that's spade on the radar screen. So that that's an impossible radar case. Something was there and the witnesses looked and saw a, uh, something with a light on it flashing as it was traveling along. The main part of that sighting as far as uh, publicity is concerned is the, the, as they were flying from Christchurch northward at about 230 in the morning. Uh, they saw a very bright light and filmed a lot of film of it, and I used one frame of that film to calculate how bright this thing was. Uh, I make an estimate of how it was brightness, and I wrote a paper that appeared in Applied Optics, uh, a little paper that appeared in Applied Optics in the summer of 1979, and then a rebutting paper appeared in December of 1979 saying it was a squid boat, and then I rebutted the rebuttal. And yet another paper said so it couldn't have been a good vote because it, it moved. Anyway, that has uh, it's a very complicated
1: series of events. Bruce, we really haven't got enough time to really cover all the ramifications. Why don't I want to ask you just one final question before we end the show, and it's going to require probably a lot of discussion, but we don't have more than a couple of minutes. And that is, we look over the years at the obvious evidence that eyewitness testimony— is extremely unreliable. Of course, a lot of UFO cases don't have radar visual sightings or photographs or anything like that. It's all the eyewitness. So when you have situations like this, how do you know how accurate to take those eyewitness perceptions, especially when we have an unexpected event that might be frightening to some people?
6: Well, uh, it depends on the type of event. Uh, you have to evaluate each sighting on its own. I make a make a, a grand scale comment that well, I'm never going to talk about single witness cases. I'm never going to talk about cases that have only two two or less witnesses, uh, and you still have a bunch of cases left over. If you say you're going to talk about only cases that have hard evidence or landing traces, case cases and stuff, you still got a bunch left over. So. I think you have to evaluate each case on its merits. And, uh, certainly, most of them are single witness cases, but that doesn't mean that the single witness case it has to be bad. I always like to go back and discuss the uh, the 1st the so-called first case, Kenneth Arnold. That's a single witness case. Mr. Arnold made measurements as the sighting went on, and he took detailed notes in his head. He memorized the various places these things flew, straight line southward.
1: point being here is that he made a lot of effort to enhance his memory there of what can. he saw to catalog as much as possible. That's of course the Kenneth Arnold case. A, you
6: can't say that he was a copycat case because that was the first one.
1: Sure. Bruce McAbee, please tell our listeners where they can find more of the things you do.
6: Well, on the internet www.bruemac.8k.com. B R U M A C. number 8 letter K.com.
1: We have a link to that at the Paracast.com site. The book is called... The
6: FBI UFO Connection.
1: And you can Uh, order a copy from RichardDolanPress.com or The Usual Offenders. All right. We have things to tell you about us. We have, of course, the Paracast Plus. That's plus.theparacast.com, P-L-U-S.theparacast.com. Com. Check out how you can get an ad-free version of the Paracast, higher quality content. We're going to have other stuff like After the Paracast and special audio-video presentations to offer, chat rooms and more, plus paracast.com Check out Chris O'Brien's site, ourstrangeplanet.com, ourstrangeplanet.com. Get a copy of Stalking the Herd, signed and numbered if you buy the hardcover version. And by the way, if you visit our site, theparacast.com, and you sign up for our free weekly newsletter. We give you something else free, a copy of Secrets of the Mysterious Valley from Chris O'Brien, the ebook version at theparacast.com for the Paracast newsletter. Dr. Bruce McAbee, thanks for joining us on the Paracast.
6: Thank you for having me. Very interesting.